You're listening to audio from Mercy Hill Church of Port Austin. To learn more about us, you can visit mercyhillpa.org. When you meet someone for the very first time, you usually begin by kind of sharing some basic information, like what your name is, who you are, what you do for a living. And um, if you stay connected over time, you start to learn more about the person. You learn more about what they believe and and how they live. And, and I think in some ways, this normal natural progression has, is somewhat ruined today with social media because you find someone who's like, man, really nice person. Um, wow, it's great to meet them. And you follow them on Facebook and you're like, wow, not a nice person, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know who this person is, right? Um, but normally it's, it's a progression and you start to get to know the person over time. And, and, and it's not a perfect illustration, but in some ways, this is how I kind of structured this series, Explore Membership. Last week, we just kind of introduced you. We said, who are we? What do we do? Why do we exist? This week, we're going to go a little deeper and look at what do we believe as Christians, um, as a local church. And, and then next week, we'll look at how we live. And in final week, we'll kind of look at some structures in place. But we're just going to sort of mo- mark our way through this and learn these things about our church. And so um, last week, we did look at the fact that we are a community of baptized believers who love God, love others, and make disciples. Right? That's the, the great commandment and the great commission. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus gives us to do. So if it feels overwhelming at times, like this is a lot of stuff. What do we, what do, we do with this? Well, Jesus helped us love God, love others, make disciples. Go out, share the gospel, and help them to now love God, love others, and make disciples. And we said we exist for the glory of Jesus. That's the, that's the purpose behind everything that we do as a church. This is about Jesus here, his name and his fame. And I said this last week, I'll say it again. If it ever becomes a show, if it ever becomes like this is more about me as the preacher, then fire me and get someone who's going to point you to Jesus. Because pointing to me or my ideas or my thoughts, that's not going to help you. That's not going to feed your soul. You need Jesus. My job is to give you a glimpse of the radiant beauty and loveliness of Jesus every single week. To stir your affections for him so that you can go on and live for him. Now this week we're going to look at what we believe. And this is really more important than last week. Because if we don't know who God is according to his word, then we can't love him rightly. Right? If we don't know what it means to love others, if we don't have categories biblically for that, then, then we can't do it. And we certainly can't make disciples of Jesus if we don't know who Jesus is, what the Bible says about him, what the Bible says about his followers, and, and what they're supposed to do. And so today, um, this is a really important message, and it, it's really asking this question, what do we believe the Bible teaches about key areas? Okay, now our church, as I've said for the last several weeks, is organized around three key documents. Our statement of faith, which is what we believe. Our church covenant, which is how we live together. It's a really beautiful, warm document. And then our constitution, which is how we're structured. And that one um, sometimes is a little more uh, legal. There's stuff in there that, uh, you know, you kind of have to wade through. But it's good to be familiar with as a member of our church. And so today we're going to look at that first document, our statement of faith. And it summarizes what we believe the Bible teaches about the most important things to be a local church. Now, we don't believe this document is inspired. Okay, um, if, you're, if you're following along with those notes that I added, then I, I gave you links to look at the verses because that's where the authority is in the Bible. Okay, this is a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. It certainly isn't the Bible, though. All right. And so what we're going to do is, is kind of walk through this document. And I want to start by reading you the introduction of the statement. It says this from the time of the apostles to today, Christians have laid out their beliefs in brief definitive statements. As those who know God, we believe it necessary to set forth in a concise fashion the cornerstone truths 
of our church as guided by scripture. Okay, so that's what we're attempting to do here with this document. Our statement of faith is based on the historic New Hampshire Confession of 1853. And it highlights and summarizes beliefs we deem as essential of this local body and faithfulness to our Lord. All who join our church are required to affirm this statement of faith and, and are responsible for believing and living in accordance with it. All right? Now you'll notice, first of all, that it says that this is based on the 1853 New Hampshire Confession. Um, that's a pretty old document. And as a brand new church in tumultuous times um, like today, I thought it would be really helpful and wise to root ourselves in, in a historic document that stood this test of time. That's, this is what we believe the Bible teaches. And, and, and also you'll, you'll find it helpful, I think, to know that we're a little church kind of in the middle of the nowhere. And, and we certainly don't want to be a, um, a cult that kind of comes up with our own beliefs, right? And it's helpful for you to know that this document is one of the most popular, widely used Protestant confession of faith um, around today. Um, one source I read said it is the most widely used one. And so it's a very popular one. It started in 1833. They revised it a little. 1853 became kind of the standard. And you'll find the ours is a little modernized um, because some of the language back then was difficult um, to understand. But that's what our statement is based on. And part of being a member of this church is, is to agree together on these important teachings. So this is what we believe. This is what we want to uphold together as a church. And so you may be thinking now, if you've looked at the statement or some of you have already read it, it has 18 articles, 18 different topics that it covers. And you may be like, how in the world are you going to cover that in 30 minutes? Right? Like what, what do you, even if we did like a point each, each one, which a minute on each one, it would be a lot of the sermon right there. And so I wrestled with that a lot this week on how to do this. And what I, what I did is I read through it and kind of wrestled with this. Um, I was able to kind of categorize the different things into four key topics. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to do this and we're certainly not going to be exhaustive with this, but we're going to answer four questions today from our statement of faith that I think will give you a summary. We're going to ask, what do we believe about God? What do we believe about humanity or people? What do we believe about salvation? Uh, how, do, how does one get saved? And lastly, what do we believe about the church? All right, and so four key questions and before we jump into those questions, we need to look at Article 1, the scriptures, because everything that we believe about those four questions has to be rooted in the Word of God. Okay, so Article 1 in the statement says, the scriptures, we believe the Holy Bible was written by people who were divinely inspired. And I love this, it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. Isn't that awesome? A perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. God is its author salvation is its purpose, and truth without any mixture of error is its content. Scripture reveals the principles by which God will judge us. Therefore, it is now and will be to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard for evaluating all human conduct, creeds, and opinions. And so Scripture alone is our foundation. This is the word of God. We believe this is the word of God. And so everything that we ask about life, about who God is, about how we're saved, about humanity, needs to be anchored in the word of God. Now, with that in mind, we're going to look at question one. What do we believe about God? And since there's only one article under this, article two, the true God, we can read it in full. We won't be able to do this um, all throughout, but I'm just going to read this for you. It says, we believe there is one and only one living and true God. An infinite, intelligent spirit. His name is the Lord, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. He is inexpressibly glorious in holiness and is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. That's our God. In the unity of the Godhead, 
There are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are equal in every divine perfection, and they carry out distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Now, a few things to highlight here. First of all, we believe that God is one. Okay, so we as a church, we are monotheists, okay? Um, We only believe in one God. However, we believe God is three. (laughs) And you may be like, what does that mean? He is one God in three persons. This is known as the doctrine of the Trinity. Some of you have been around this for so long that it it doesn't really hurt your brain. You just kind of accept it, but it it really should hurt your brain as you think about it. Um, That there is one God, and yet he he reveals himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, And we sing about this in the hymn, God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. There's certainly some mystery here, but I want to encourage you with the fact that the infinite God is far bigger than our finite human minds. Uh, If we could fit God in our heads, would he be worthy of worship? And and so this is the first thing to understand. God is one, but he's one in three. Next, we believe God is an infinite, intelligent spirit. This comes straight from John 4, 24, which says God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice also that God is eternal. I heard a preacher one time joking. He said, when I try to think the fact that God has no beginning and no end, um, one side of my brain hits against the other side of my brain, and then I just can't think for a minute, and I just have to go eat a bowl of Lucky Charms. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I guess. Yeah, I can, I can get that. But like, if Trinity is hard, eternity, like no beginning, no end, that, that's, that's hard to comprehend. But again, this should lead us to worship, to, to the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. In all generations, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isn't that awesome? It also states that God is the maker and ruler of all things. He created everything, he sustains everything, and he is sovereign over everything. And so when it seems like things are out of control, take comfort in the fact that your God is in control. And take comfort in the fact that the God who holds the reins of history... In his hands, who is sovereign over the dust particles in this room and the galaxies that we can't even see yet. He is also the one who is inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. Isn't it encouraging to know this, that the one who reigns over all things is a God of love? And what if he was just a tyrant? What if he just got mad at us for random things and like struck us down with stuff? God is a God of love. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of justice. He's he's a God who's faithful, who doesn't change. He's worthy of our love, our confidence, and our honor. You know, sometimes in our lives, it can be hard to wrestle with this. I want to bring some application here before we move to the next question, because it can be hard to say that God is is in control of all things, and, and yet why is this happening in my life? Or why isn't he answering this prayer that I've been begging him to answer for years now? What, what is happening? What, how, how, is this, how does this work? And, and my favorite place to do this is when we're, we're not understanding his will for our lives. When it's hard, when it's mysterious, when it hurts, we should look at his heart for us. And I love to do this in John chapter 11. Here, Mary and Martha send to Jesus the news. Now, Jesus is God. So if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. He's, he's, he's the image of the invisible God. He shows us God, okay? Jesus gets this news from his friends, Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus is sick. Now, the obvious solution here would be for Jesus, the one who's been healing all these people, to just go heal Lazarus, right? Like, that would be the solution. But in verse 5 of John 11, listen to this. Now, Jesus loved Martha, and her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? He loved them and so he stayed? It would make more sense if it said he loved them and so he went and healed. He loved them and so he stayed. And to make matters worse, while he was staying, Lazarus dies. Now, if you know the end of the story, then don't just kind of gloss over this. Like, think through this for a second. He stays and he lets Lazarus die. And yet he says he did it because he loved them. When Jesus finally does get there, Mary runs to him and falls at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can almost sense some frustration in her voice, and rightly so. Now it's here where we really see the heart of Christ and also the heart of God. I want you to see this. He sees Mary and the others weeping. And again, you know the end of the story. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He sees Mary and the others weeping, and instead of rebuking them for their lack of faith, or saying, hey, don't you know I have a plan for all this? Hey, why don't you just trust my timing? Hey, why don't you just put more faith in me? No, what does he do in that moment? He knows the end of the story, but in that moment, in that grief, in that pain, in that sadness, what does he do? He weeps. The one who made all things is grieved by this, and he weeps. And so I want you to take comfort in this. Listen, you may not know why God is allowing certain things in your life. You may not understand why he's not answering requests that you've been begging him to answer. But when you can't understand his will, trust his heart. We were talking, I was talking with Shane, and we've been praying and asking God for him to move in our lives. And, and, and there's this one specific area that we've been praying about, and, and he's not answering it, and we don't understand it. But, but I said, let's think right now, in this moment of, of sadness, that Jesus is weeping alongside of us. Yeah, he knows it's going to be better. He knows he's working all things for our good. He knows that, man, we should just trust him more. And and there's better things to come. But in the sadness, in the pain, in the darkness, he's next to us, weeping alongside of us. That's our God. He's the infinite and intelligent maker and ruler of all things. Yes, he's the gentle and lowly Savior who weeps with you in your pain. And so this is why we can say in our statement of faith, he's worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. This is our God. This brings us to our next question. What do we believe about humanity? Here we'll cover Articles 3 and 16. I'll start by reading Article 3, Humanity and the Fall. It says, we believe humanity is a special creation of God made in his own image. God created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. The gift of marriage consists of the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. And this gift models the way God relates to his people. Now, obviously, this first paragraph is somewhat controversial in our culture today, and I'm going to answer questions with this in Table Talk today and wrestle with what the Bible says about this. The next paragraph says this, though. God created the human race in holiness under his law, but by voluntary transgression, humanity fell from that holy and happy state. As a result, all people are now sinners, not by external compulsion, but by choice. They are na- by nature entirely lack the holiness that is required by the law of God, and they're actively inclined to evil. Therefore, they are under the just condemnation to a sentence of eternal ruin without defense or excuse. And so that's kind of an overview of people, and we're going to come back to that in a second. But the next thing is Article 16, which is government. And so God gives us government, and it's, and it's for our good. And it's Article 16. It says, we believe that civil government was ordained by God for the benefit and good order of human society. So we should pray for and honor our government officials. And 
all the while maintaining that Jesus Christ is our ultimate Lord and King, and we always are going to obey him rather than man. And I'm sure you have questions about this, especially regarding this past year, and we'll talk about that in Table Talk as well. But to summarize our beliefs about humanity, we believe that humans were made in the image of God. This means that every person, every person, not just Christians, every person of every ethnicity, both male and female, possess full dignity and are worthy of Christian love. Do you understand that? They're made in the image of God. And so we love them. Regardless of their background or their beliefs or even their behavior, we love them. They're created by God. Along with this, every person has a purpose to reflect or to glorify God by loving him and enjoying him forever. How awesome is that? That every person in this room was knit together in their mother's womb and they have a purpose to fulfill in this life for the glory of God. That's awesome. We also see that humanity's big purpose to glorify God, unfortunately, they fell short of that in sin. They rebelled from this happy and holy state. Our first parents rebelled and, and what this did is it ushered sin and death into the world and now all of us are born natural sinners. I always joke, we're like that one cart at Walmart with the bent wheel. We're just bent in the wrong direction and we're bent away from God. And you can test all the carts, but man, you end up with that one. And then that's just how it is. And those of you who have parents know, you didn't have to teach your kids how to bite one another and fight. They, they just do it. How, well, how did that happen? Because we're born sinners, right? We're naturally born that way. I was born outnumbered. I had three sisters, no brothers. And my dad, he didn't have to teach me how to like fight my sisters, man. That just came natural, right? And so we, we need to understand this. This helps us understand the world today. The brokenness of the world today is a direct result of the fall of man. There was a fracture in the cosmos. That, that harmony between God and man was broken and it led to all this other pain and conflict. Relational conflict. Anger. Hatred. Pain. Sickness. Murder. Death. War. Plagues. Disease. All of these things are a result of the fall. Sin and brokenness are everywhere we look. And the worst part about all of this is that we can't escape it on our own. We have all sinned. We all partake in this. We have all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. Thankfully, though, God did not leave us in our sin and brokenness. He sent us a Savior and offers us a way of salvation. And we'll look at that in our next question. What do we believe about salvation? This is by far the most thoroughly covered topic in our statement of faith. Under this article, we're covering articles 4 through 12 and 17 and 18. So that's a lot, okay? But again, we're going to be doing some summarizing, all right? With that in mind, we'll jump right in, starting with articles 4 and 6, because they kind of act as a summary of what we believe about salvation. Article 4 highlights the way of salvation as completely by grace through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. In summary, Jesus took on our nature, lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law without sin, he then took our sins upon himself and died as our substitute on the cross, paying the penalty of God's wrath that we deserved. You need to get this because there are teachers today, so-called Christian teachers, that teach that Jesus just died as a good example for us of humility and self-sacrifice. That's heresy. That completely robs the gospel of its power and its life-giving joy. He didn't just die to say, look and do this and follow me. No, no, no. He died in your place. Do you understand that? If you're a believer today, he actually died in your place, absorbed the wrath you deserve, took the penalty you deserve, paid for your sins, paid for my sins, the substitutionary atonement. He made us at one. That's what atonement is. At one with God through his substitutionary death on the cross. This is awesome. 
He then rose again triumphantly and is ruling and reigning from his throne today as the all-sufficient Savior. Article 6 highlights the fact that this salvation accomplished by Jesus is made free to all by the gospel. Next, in Articles 5 and 7 through 12, we see some really big theological terms, okay? We see election, we see regeneration, we see conversion, justification, and perseverance. Um, but these are all so, so awesome if you can get these. And, and so as we look at these, what we're going to do is we're going to start in eternity past, okay? So again, your brain might hurt. You might need some lucky charms later today. That's okay. We're going to start in eternity past with God's purpose of grace. It's Article 9. It says this, we believe election is the eternal purpose of God, according to which he graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves sinners. You know what this means if you're a believer today? That God in eternity past looked at you and all of your sin and all of your brokenness and all of your struggle, and he graciously determined to love you and save you when there was nothing lovely about you. You know, what this, you know what's so awesome about this? If you didn't earn God's love, there's nothing you can do to lose it. If he loved you and you're worse, he, he's going to love you throughout. And he looked at you, he saw you in all your wickedness and rebellion against him, and yet he chose to love you. And, and, and when we wrestle with this as theologians and pastors and say, well, why did God love us? And why, why did he do this? And it kind of stretches our mind to think. And, and the only answer is that he loves us because he loves us. Like, you can't say he loves us because we're good. He loves us because we, we obey. He loves us because we're going to choose him. No, no, no. He loves us because he loves us. We don't, we don't have any other answer. And that is something that will get you through this life. I didn't earn God's love. I can't lose it. And when I wake up today and fall flat on my face as a Christian and mess up, guess what? His mercy is new every morning. His steadfast love never ceases. Isn't that awesome? This article continues. Election is perfectly consistent with human free agency and includes all the means necessary to achieve God's purposes. I love this. In other words, just like the Trinity, there is some mystery here, but if we were to summarize this, God is sovereign, man is responsible. And the Bible teaches both, and we uphold both in our church. This brings us to Article 7 and 8, which says that to be saved, sinners must be born again, or the fancy word for that is regenerated. Okay? Um, regeneration. This happens when the Holy Spirit uses God's word to open our eyes and to give us life. Again, this is a mysterious work. We don't know when it happens or really um, how it happens, um, but we do know this. We can see the fruit of it when someone turns and trusts in Jesus. They repent and believe. John, in John 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. To even see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. And so if you're a Christian today, it's not because you were smarter than others or you had more faith than others or you made better decisions than others. It's because God granted you the gift of life. Behind your decision to trust Jesus was God's decision to give you life, to help you see Jesus, to make you run to him and cling to him for salvation. That's what it means to be born again. All of a sudden we come alive to the things of God and we believe. From here we come to the great gospel blessing of justification. That's article five. When we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone, we are justified or declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. Isn't that awesome? The before, the only one who really matters, the highest authority, the highest judge on earth, you have been declared righteous if you're a believer today. God pardons our sin and he imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. So again, I've talked about like when you come to Jesus, you come with your tattered, sin-covered, nasty robes, and you bring them to him, and he says, I'll make you a trade. Give me your robe of sin. I'm, I paid for that on the cross. I'll give you my robe of righteousness. 
I love that. This justification ensures peace with God both now and for all eternity. How awesome is it to know that we have peace with God because of Christ's death on the cross? In Articles 10 and 11, we see that after justification, God begins a process of making us in practice who we are in position. So positionally, we're declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. But practically, it doesn't always look like that, does it? And I'm a, I'm a pastor, and I'll say it doesn't always look like that in my life. And if you're not sure, ask my wife. She'll tell you. I'm not always holy. I'm, not always, I'm always acting like I'm justified, okay? And so, so sanctification is what takes place. We are, we are made holy by the power of the Spirit, which is a progressive work over time. It begins at regeneration when he grants us life, and it, and it continues until he calls us home. And so how do we know during this rocky road that, uh, of sin and struggle and brokenness and pain, how do we know that, that we're going to persevere, that we're going to stay a Christian? Is this something like we've got to like hold on to him and it's all up to us? No, we believe that God's chosen people, God's beloved ones are going to persevere in obedience. Why? Listen to this in this statement. We are kept by the power of God through faith to salvation. In other words, when you fear your faith will fail, he will hold you fast. Isn't that awesome? He'll not let your soul be lost. His promises will last. That's our God. And the reason we stay a Christian, the reason that tomorrow when you wake up with the devil sitting on your head, right? And it's Monday and everything's going wrong and you're not really sure about this whole thing. You're going to stay a believer if you're a believer because you're being kept by the power of God through faith to salvation. This brings us to Article 17 and 18, which talks about what happens to the righteous and wicked in the world to come. Those who are justified by faith in Jesus will be glorified and welcomed into endless joy in the glories of heaven. But those who refuse Jesus will remain in their sins and be justly assigned to endless punishment in hell. And this grave reality should break our hearts. It should motivate us to get the gospel out to everyone we know. It should, it should remind us that the loving thing to do with those in our care, those in our influence, is to share Jesus. When, when in a culture where that's called being, being forceful and being aggressive and being a bigot, being a fanatic, no, no, no. We understand we're going to get labeled when we try to share Jesus with people, but we do it because we love them. And the cost may be great. Relationships may be fractured. And I'm not saying you go and you cram the gospel down someone's throat. That's not going to work. But, but think through the people that God has placed in your life and, and ask God, would you open their eyes? Would you give me an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with them that Jesus has died on the cross for their sins and they can be saved? That's amazing to think about. This brings us to our final question today. We don't have to spend a lot of time here because we did do an entire series on this before this series. So if you're like, what do we believe about the church? We'll just go on the podcast and listen to the definition of the church and the nature of the church and the purpose of the church and, and the leaders of the church and the members of the church. It's all there, okay? Um, but we are going to just briefly walk through articles 13 through 15. Um, the first one says that we believe a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers joined together by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. Notice, first of all, we're a congregation. That gets to the heart of what a church is. We're a body. We're an assembly. We're a people. Which means, by definition, we must gather together. As Article 15 points out, we do this on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Why do we meet on Sundays? 
to commemorate the resurrection of Christ from the dead and point to the rest that awaits the people of God. I'm telling you, this is not a cold theological document. This is a document that will warm your heart in worship if you read it correctly. Man, this is what Sunday is about. To, to remind ourselves, to commemorate that Jesus rose from the dead, conquered hell, death, and the grave on this day. We celebrate that every week, and it points to the future rest that's coming when he takes away all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all the struggle that we're facing in this world. And we're going to live on a new earth with new bodies, perfect fellowship with God. We're not just a congregation, though. We're a congregation of baptized believers. This means that our members are made up of only those who have believed in Jesus and publicly identified with him in baptism. Finally, we're joined together by covenant, both in the faith, what we believe, and the fellowship, how we live of the gospel. Now, Article 13 um, continues by saying, a visible church observes the ordinances of Christ. Okay, and as we mentioned this week, we're a church of Christ. We belong to him. We represent him. So we operate under his authority. And, and one of the ways we do that is by or observing two ordinances that the Bible gives us. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I, I need to make this point. Baptism does not save us. Baptism does not add to our salvation. The Lord's Supper does not merit us any more favor with God. What did we just say in salvation? It's completely by grace. So, so you're not getting brownie points by showing up today. <laughs> right? Isn't that awesome though? That God's love doesn't waver each day based on our obedience and based on our service and based on how good we were that week. We'd be in trouble if that were the case. It's completely by grace. And so what is baptism in the Lord's Supper? If they don't save us, if they don't merit us any favor before God, then what are they? Well, baptism, we believe, is the immersion of a believer in water and in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a solemn and beautiful emblem that declares our faith in the crucified buried, and risen Savior, as well as our union with him in death to sin and resurrection to new life. Baptism is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. So um, I've illustrated it this way. Baptism is like a wedding ring. Okay, this wedding ring doesn't make me married to Shannon. Okay, if I toss this out and some guy grabbed it and said, all right, I'm married to Shannon, it wouldn't work that way, right? What does this do? It shows people that I publicly identify as Shannon's husband. That's what baptism does. It's a beautiful emblem. It's going up in front, of, in front of people and saying, you know what? Jesus took my sins. And now I'm going to be united with him. I'm going to be identified with him. I'm going to die with him in burial. And I'm going to raise to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism is. As one pastor put it, baptism puts a watery grave between us and our former life of sin. You know what's awesome about baptism? If, if we remember it rightly, and, and some of us were young, we don't remember all the details, but if you, if you remember that baptism, when you went down into that water, that publicly and symbolically showed that all of your brokenness, all of your sin, all of your struggle, all those things that we trip up, they're dead and they're in the ground. The old you is dead. And a new you is alive today. And it's not you who live, but Christ who lives in you. That's what baptism is. It's beautiful. Now, we believe baptism is for believers only, not for our infant children. It's, it's seen in the scriptures that it was only those who believed first and then were baptized. And so since baptism is the very first command that Jesus gives for his followers, we follow the centuries-old practice of making it a prerequisite for church membership. So what do we believe about the Lord's Supper? We believe the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience, whereby the members of the church, following earnest self-examination, you should use the Lord's Supper. We, we try to do it monthly here. You should use it to really examine your heart, examine your life. So following earnest self-examination, we use the bread and the cup in a sacred manner 
to commemorate together the dying love of Christ. The Lord's Supper is bittersweet. It's bitter as we examine that it was our sins and our rebellion that nailed Christ to the cross. But it's sweet as we consider the mercy and grace that was purchased for us there. It's important again to note that these do not merit salvation. The ordinances belong to those who are already saved. And they mark off believers from unbelievers, um, making the church visible on earth. The final statement of Article 13 says that only scriptural offices are elders, also called pastors and overseers and deacons, and the qualifications for those are listed in Timothy and Titus. And so as we close today, what I want to do is I just want to say, why does this matter? Like, what, what, what does this matter, right? And I've tried to, tried to make that clear throughout, hopefully. I know this is a lot of teaching today. Um, there's a lot of information. Um, but what does it matter for today? Well, I want to read a few passages from 1 Timothy. First, it says, 1 Timothy 3, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Seems like we're living in the last days, doesn't it? <laughs> for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. I mean, this list just goes on and on and on. Then he says in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And he says this in verse 16, All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And listen to this solemn charge he gives to Timothy, this young pastor. The Apostle Paul tells him, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Do you understand that right now, this, right now we are in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. Jesus is more real than anyone in this room right now. He's real right now, and he's, we're in his presence. Who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, he says this, preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. Don't preach your opinions. Don't preach what's popular. Don't preach what's going to build a crowd. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Repuve, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Listen to this. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I do not want that for our church. And it's already happening all around our culture today. The time is coming when people, they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear that they're bankrupt sinners on their way to hell that need to, to trust Jesus alone to be saved. They don't want to hear that. You didn't wake up to come and hear that probably either. But we need to hear it. They don't want to hear a preacher telling them that Jesus is the only way. That's exclusive. That's, that's too narrow. But that's, that's what the Bible says. And I am charged in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and before all of his angels to, to be here in front of you and to preach the word because I don't want you to wander off into myths. And so that's why this matters, that you know what we believe and that you agree with what we believe. And so that also there's a mutual accountability here. I'm committing to preach the word to you and you're going to listen. You're not going to gather a teacher with itching ears wanting, oh, well, I hope he makes me laugh this week. No, did he preach the Bible? I need the Bible. Sir, we would see Jesus, not your opinions, not jokes, not stories. We need Jesus to feed our souls. And so that's why this matters. That's why we make every member who's going to be a member of our church read this document. It doesn't take long. 
But read through it. Understand what you believe and why you believe it. We're charged as the, as the pillar and ground of truth as a church. And so this is why this matters. By grace, we want to be a church that forever stands on a solid foundation of the word of God.